Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science again on your radio or podcast device, depending on how you choose to listen to this fabulous program. Um, joining me, as always, is the uh, the wonderful Stu. Stu, how are you? I'm I'm very well. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, look... Uh, I'm a bit flat out, Stu. I've been been uh, moving house, and it's uh, it's taking it out of me. I've got to say that. Well, I did I did allude to that the other week, but at least you didn't have to double all of your housing contents as you did it, which was yeah part of the story. Well, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yes. Um, I look. I was. Um, you know, people do say that moving house is one of the most stressful life events. Um, I did actually do a quick kind of look up to see whether there's any science behind that and i just it just seems to be a bold claim that people make <laughs> um i did found some find some studies about stressful life events and moving house did not make the lists but i don't know you choose to believe what you want to believe i think in this it's all subjective oh there were some non-scientific surveys you know done by say moving companies who survey you know a few hundred people who will go yes moving is really stressful how can you help me um i don't know if i trust those they're not published in peer-reviewed journals they, they may not be neutral in their outlook either they may not be entirely neutral no i think i think that's the case anyway um real science Stu, what have you got for us well um you know speaking of bold claims uh i'm actually having a look at um, conspiracy theories, which is, you know, it is, it's a recurring theme on the show. I think we do, we do sort of, um, tackle a lot of these, but, you know, conspiracy theories, are are a sort of, uh, you know, kind of a social problem, I, I, I suppose is probably one way to look at them. And there is, you know, there's been a lot of effort gone into how do we, how do we, uh, get people who've gone down the the uh, metaphorical rabbit hole how do we pull them back out of that rabbit hole so there's been a lot of studies about you know different methods of trying to get people off the conspiracy theory wagon uh, but I wanted to talk about a systematic review which is one of our favorite kinds of review um, a systematic review which was just recently published which looked at all of the uh, conspiracy theory, um, sort of approaches of interventions and which ones work best and how do they work best. So I'm going to be talking about that. Okay. Well, um, I I look forward to the truth being not out there, but in there, as in in this in this program. The truth is in here. Yes. Truth is in here. That's right. That's right. And if you think that Stu is covering up something by doing this, then I don't know. Maybe you should listen to his story. <laughs> uh, well, me, I'm going to be taking it easy. I'm just going to be listening to plants. Um, the secret sounds of plants? 
That's right. That's right. Um, there has been some new research about um, plants and how they can actually uh, emit sounds when under under stressful conditions. Um, like we know that plants, we're gradually becoming more aware that plants can communicate with each other, but it seems they can actually communicate via sound or at least emit sounds and maybe even listen to sounds. So we're going to find out what this is all about. Uh, uh, yeah, and I don't know, Stu, you can lend some of your expertise on plant communication as well. Yeah, look, I, I've been I've been sort of aware of this story, but I haven't had a good chance to dig into it. Um, <laughs> pardon the pun. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'll be interested to hear uh, what the actual research says, and maybe we can maybe we can um, figure out what it actually means. I guess is the other question. Yeah, what are the plants trying to tell us? Mm. Mm. Well, um, stay tuned for that and maybe even some sounds of talking plants. Um, Yeah, later in the show. Now, conspiracy conspiracy theories have been in the spotlight over the last couple of years, but they're obviously nothing new. Um, You know, the moon landing hoax has been uh, a claim uh, at least as long uh, as the film Capricorn One came out, which is about the American government faking a Mars landing, not a moon landing, but certainly the uh, the increase in in lunar landing hoaxes peaked after that. Or still, it's still rising i think but you know certainly jumped up in in numbers but conspiracy theories today seem to have a much more politically divisive angle whether it be QAnon or covid vaccine conspiracies the divisions they're causing in society are a problem and they're you know they're finding their way into courtrooms and houses of parliament and various government agencies from time to time uh, and there's even concern that far-right groups are deliberately fueling conspiracy theories that challenge mainstream information in order to grow just general dissent in the population, which undermines legitimate governments all over the world, and it helps you know, far-right uh, extremists to win people over to their, to their um, cause, I suppose. Um, but, you know, with, with all this in mind, it's worth considering how to approach conspiracy theories and, and try and help people who promote them to see the ways in which they're often damaging and possibly even dangerous. There are even studies that show a connection uh, between people who subscribe to conspiracy beliefs and, uh, you know, avoidance of healthcare as well as extremist and sometimes violent behaviour. So there's, there is good reason to sort of sort of figure out how we can potentially stop these um, irrational beliefs as well. Um, so a great deal of research into interventions in conspiracy theories has shown often very little impact in many of the methods that have been tried to influence or to reduce conspiracy beliefs in people. Um, 
But an Irish team of researchers have just published a systematic review, which is, you know, a pretty high level of of scientific review. They've looked at a lot of studies and narrowed it down and found studies that fit their criteria, which was pretty rigorous as well. So they started off with over 2,000 studies and narrowed it down. But um, they've, they've basically looked at interventions designed for the purpose of reducing people's belief in conspiracies and have found that while many are not very effective in, in doing that, uh, there may be some ways to help and there's particular ways to approach the issue. So the study was published in PLOS One. They ended up with, you know, as I said, they started with 2,000 studies. They narrowed it down to 13 studies that included intervention into conspiracy beliefs between or within groups of adults, as in over 18, with no clinical psychiatric afflictions. So they tried to exclude as much noise from this review as they possibly could by having quite rigorous uh, criteria to, to choose them. Now, this seems to me like something that is quite difficult to study. So like a systematic review, I guess, for people who don't know too much about that, it is, as you say, you get a whole lot of other studies that have examined uh, an issue and you try to combine them all together to get sort of, I suppose, maybe, you know, a consensus or a um, uh, an overall view of, of what works for something. Um, but, of course, you're limited by the the studies that, that go into it. And in this case, I mean, like with a lot of medical stuff, you try to find the gold standard of research, which is you randomize controlled trials, you know, double-blinded, ideally, this kind of stuff. Are we taught, what sort of studies are they doing in this kind of area that they these 13 studies that they've they've narrowed it down to are they high quality studies or are they yeah what what are they 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 are they are high quality studies and i think what they did here was not not they're not sort of surveys or anything like that they're actual experimental studies where they've taken participants in groups tried various things uh, exposed them to conspiracy theories that they didn't have opinions about before the experiment. So it is an actual experimental sort of cohort of studies. They're not just, you know, social surveys of what people already think or anything like that. So they're, they're pretty well set up psychological studies. So they are, you know, they've got before and after, they've got within group, they've got control groups and all that sort of thing. But it, obviously with... Uh, with what people think and what they believe, it is a bit harder to you know to to gauge than say a medical study. But but the studies that they've looked at are pretty high quality studies, and they that's why they excluded so many studies from the systematic review was because a lot of the other stuff wasn't focused on what they wanted to know, and it wasn't necessarily these kind of experimental before and after studies as well, which is what they're really focusing on. Right. Um, so they found uh, that very few intervention methods had a large effect on preventing an increase in conspiracy beliefs among the participants. And those that did involved an intervention before someone is exposed to the conspiracy ideas. 
So the ones that showed a big effect, you had to get in before people had actually learned about this conspiracy that they were testing for. They call this pre-bunking, I believe. Instead of debunking, it's pre-bunking. It's it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a sort of uh, it's a clever name. But basically, the three methods that had a large effect were uh, what they called fact-based inoculation, um, pseudoscience classes, and logic-based inoculation. So, fact-based inoculation showed the strongest effect in preventing conspiracy beliefs, and this involves giving participants specific information about a particular area where there's a conspiracy existing about that about that thing that you're that you're giving them information about. So that was that had the strongest effect. Um, pseudoscience classes is where they were given classes designed to give participants a better understanding of beliefs that sound scientific but are not science based, and how to identify those pseudoscience uh, ideas when they're presented to the to the people. So they're basically learning what to look for that sounds plausible but it's not actually plausible. So there are there are sort of key indicators of pseudoscience and I think we've talked about that on the show before too. Um, and finally the logic based inoculation is based on general logical principles. So I you know logical principles by which illogical claims and ideas can be identified rather than specific information about a topic. So ways of looking for logical fallacies in what people are saying is a way to, you know, be prepared for the presentation of conspiracy ideas. So those are the three that had the strongest effects uh, and they had what these um, researchers termed a large effect. So it was, you know, a very, very strong effect and the probabilities were very low and that sort of stuff that it was, that it was incorrect. Now, other interventions had a medium effect, what they classed as a medium effect in conspiracy prevention, were also all prior to exposure to the conspiracy. Um, And they included things like anti-conspiracy arguments. You know, you present arguments against a conspiracy before you expose them to the conspiracy. And also, which is an interesting one too, resistance to persuasion training. So they get trained in ways to identify persuasive language and sort of fight against it, I suppose, and, and be uh, immune to it. So um, there was there was a f- quite a few other things that had minor effects in reducing conspiracy thinking, including things like debunking or ridiculing arguments, but also, and this, this is, uh, I guess, a bit of a change, appealing to empathy doesn't seem to have a strong effect so if you if you ask people to think about the people that will be hurt by the conspiracy and all those sorts of things, doesn't actually seem to have a strong effect on on whether people up, take up a conspiracy belief or not, which is which is an interesting finding because it was a piece of advice that was kind of floating around fairly recently that oh that's one way to do it is appeal to their sort of humanity and appeal to their empathy doesn't seem to have a strong effect at all. Um, Ultimately, what they found was the best way to prevent conspiracy thinking is to promote critical thinking in people before they are exposed to conspiracy ideas. And both specific and general logic and fact-based methods can do that, can actually prepare people to look for these things and look for faults in the, in the arguments. It's really just a, 
you know, I mean, we uh, certainly when I was at school, we did used to have to do debates, and that was one of the things you were supposed to do in the debate was look for these logical flaws in the argument. That's something that seems to, according to this research, have a strong effect on helping prevent people from falling into these conspiracy ideas. And just on a personal note, it seems like this might be a good component to include in, say, compulsory school curriculums, uh, maybe maybe even in primary school. But um, I think certainly at some point in our schooling before we expect people to vote for anything. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, I suppose the question we're looking at here, well, that I'm looking at, um, and I don't want to sound all conspiratorial here, but what are plants talking about when we're not looking or listening? If a tree falls in the forest, do other trees hear it, I guess? Stu, what do you have to say? Well, look, um, you know, there, there's a lot of lot of research into plant communication over recent years, you know, the last sort of 20 years, we've seen a lot of um, research that shows that they communicate through hormonal signals that they can send through the air and different chemical signals from one plant to another when they get attacked and all this sort of stuff. They've also got underground networks of uh, connections through mycorrhizal fungi that connect plants together and they can signal each other through that in various ways as well. But a lot of it's kind of, you know, a plant gets attacked by something and it sends out a signal that it's stressed and other plants can receive that signal through various means and bolster their own protective, you know, mechanisms that are built into the plant. So they're basically saying, ow, ow, something's eating me pretty well is most of what they're saying. And that's what's observed, really, isn't it? You have a, a plant under stress and its neighbours then act kind of in advance of them being exposed to the threat themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the pack or the herd mentality of, you know, one animal sends out the alarm and the other animals all flee and that benefits everyone, I suppose. It's sort of just a um, survival of the fittest, but also... The more of you there are, the more likely one of you is going to survive kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. Now, this is, uh, I guess, you know, already kind of maybe uh, changing the way that we view the, the plant kingdom. Uh, but, you know, it, it maybe I guess, it might be easier then to think, okay, so, the, yes, the plants are communicating via chemical signals and stuff. But Question I'm wondering is, could they actually talk to each other using sound? Now, there has been a bit of research in uh, in recent years about um, plants responding to just sound. Um, and I'm not talking about playing music to your plants, which is kind of like a, I suppose, a, a fashion or a fad that doesn't seem to have gone away. I, I, I do recall... Um... If you remember the show Mythbusters, that they did test this, and they found that I think they found that heavy metal music 
kept the most pests away. Not not anything to do with the the uh, taste of the listeners or anything like that, but that's what they that's what they found. Um, the only the only other thing I can think of with sound and plants is that I'm pretty sure triffids could communicate with sound. Yeah, well, I, uh, they, yes, they could they could knock out little messages to each other and tell each other where there was tasty humans to eat. Well, yeah, well, we might we might um, have a look at the the triffids later if any of this goes. But like I said, there's been a bit of research, and um, I found a few um, mentions of some things like. Um, Apparently, some plants, the the type of nectar they produce can change during the presence of buzzing of bees. Um, There was an experiment where they played white noise to certain plants, Arabidopsis plants. Are you familiar with those ones? Yeah, Arabidopsis is is a model organism for plant studies. It's got a very simple or a very well understood genome. So they they often use Arabidopsis uh, in experiments, yes. Yeah, and there's um, and that one they they cause them some drought tolerant responses, um, apparently. And there's another experiment that had uh, corn plants and young corn plants, and they found the roots of them would move towards certain sounds of certain frequencies. Um, Obviously, corn plants uh, would be would be susceptible to sound because they have ears of corn. Hey. I was going to say too, um, they also, um, in that particular experiment, they also found that the plant roots would emit some clicking sounds or, dare I say, popping sounds. <laughs> That's where the popcorn. Yeah, your your ear joke was better. Um, but there, there's been some new, more recent research by a team at Tel Aviv University, and they found um, specifically that plants under stress can produce sounds. So the plants in question were, I guess, you know, your fairly easily studied tomato and tobacco plants, but there's also grapevines, um, pincushion cactus, maize and wheat and henbit dead nettle, whatever that is. Probably a, a, a weed of some description. Yeah. So what they did was they um, they had some microphones uh, to record sounds and they exposed the stems of the plants to either to drought conditions or they severed them near the soil. And then they compared those recordings to unstressed plants as well as just empty pots without plants in them. And they found that the stressed plants emitted more sounds than the, the unstressed plants. And I'm going to attempt to play for you some of the the sound that they recorded. So I should say that that sound is actually been, um, the frequency has been changed. Um, it was ultrasonic. Ultrasonic? No. Inf- What's the other one? Infrasonic. Infrasonic, I think. Uh, so below, below, the, below the range of frequencies that humans can hear? I think that's it. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, no, hang on. No, it was ultrasonic. So it was ultrasonic. It was high frequencies. Mm. Um 
sorry, above the range that humans can hear. Okay. I was thinking the I was somewhere expected to be infrasonic, but mm. it was actually ultrasonic. I got that wrong. And yeah, and they kind of downsampled the frequency so that um, so that we can we can hear it. And yeah, you do this kind of like a, a popping sound. Um, I don't know. I thought it was maybe a little bit like the clicking of the triffids that you talked about. Yeah. Um, but you know, these weren't plants that were hunting. These are plants that are like I said, under stress. And what they found was that, yeah, there was there was more of this popping sounds um, as the drought stress increased, although it then started to decline as the plants dried up. And the sounds could be detected over a fairly long distance from up to, you know, up to a few metres, like three to five metres, um, which suggests that it could be used for long-range communication. But they haven't, of course, been able to confirm whether this actually is a communication method between plants um, or whether it is used at all. Like in theory, some of these sounds can be heard by certain animals. Um, some insects can hear these, uh, these frequencies and they may give them clues to what is going on with the plant life. But yeah, further work is, I guess, required to see whether the plants themselves can hear this, these stress sounds from their neighbours. Um, I guess though, yeah. I guess uh, one of the questions that we need to ask is, is this just the sound of a stress response? Is this, you know, is this some biochemical or biomechanical process that the plant undergoes during stress that just happens to give off sound? Or is it some other kind of signaling, like you said, is it some sort of communication yeah, well, so they're accepting, suggesting that it's basically the probably is probably caused by air bubbles inside the water conducting tissue of the plants. So it does kind of suggest that it could just be something that's caused by the the drying conditions. Um, but then doesn't stop it. Then I guess being used by say other organisms who may be able to hear this, um, and like potentially by humans as well. Like for instance, if um, plants are giving off these sounds when they need water then and you had a microphone set up then you could your plant could essentially tell you when it needs needs watering um but whether it yeah it is an active form of communication i guess that is the other question but i suppose you know you can look at it two ways like is the plant deliberately trying to send a message out or um if it's just happening still doesn't stop other plants maybe from hearing it and responding to it knowing that there are drought conditions nearby yeah you can they can still adapt to you know the 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 distress signals, even if they're not deliberate distress signals, they can still adapt to yeah. to make use of them. I suppose, yeah, yeah. So look, yeah, there is a lot more work to be done on this, but it is fascinating that I guess for many of us people who are not as uh, aware of the plant kingdom as you might be, Stu, uh, to to learn about the richness of their of their lives and wonder what they they might say to us if they could which might just be water me but let's start with the essentials first and that's it for another episode of lost in science lost in science is recorded for 3cr in melbourne on the lands of the wurundjeri people of the kulin nation and it airs across australia on the community radio network with the support of the community broadcasting foundation 
we would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now, where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.